Chapter 23 Across the river from our Vicksburg plant, behind the Louisiana levee, we had a 5,000-acre proving grounds that offered us a little bit of everything except hills and rock. Such parts of it as weren't covered by scrub pine, sycamore, and gum were covered by live oak on the high spots and swamp on the low. As a veteran land leveler with machines to test, I thought first of clearing it to see what it could do in the way of cotton with a couple of thousand acres more by way of grassland for beef cattle. But when I turned some four-wheeled rubber-tired bulldozers loose against the scrub pine, toppling the trees over at the rate of four miles an hour for later burning, I was taken by another thought. I was combining the ancient art of felling trees with the equally ancient task of stump pulling. Why not add to that a means of stripping the trees of bark and branches and turning out peeled pulpwood by the carload? With that, I started looking around. If the earth-moving side of our business was to be faced with a glutted market of war surplus machines, we needed to diversify preferably in a heavy-duty field that could use the kind of big machines I liked to build. Right off, I hit pay dirt. According to the latest figures available, in 1944, the United States had turned out 15 million cords of pulpwood, and Canada had supplied 8 million cords. Since that was the year of the great paper shortage, with newspapers drastically reduced in size, it was obvious that the future was going to require the movement of tremendous mountains of wood. And moving mountains was our business. Further investigation was even more encouraging. Timber-cutting methods, whether in pulp or the giant redwoods, were little changed since Paul Bunyan put his blue ox to work. In fact, the lumbering business stood in 1946, about where the earth-moving business had stood in 1919 when I moved into it. If the war had taught us nothing else, it had taught us how to design machines overnight to meet special purposes. One such machine had been a high-speed truck for off-road duty, the main requirement being that it be capable of carrying 75 tons. That machine on tires three feet wide, I now redesigned as an off-road pulpwood transporter, figuring that if it could carry a carload of wood out of those Louisiana swamps, it could work anywhere. It breezed away with its load so fast that I designed another to carry two carloads. And once you get on the track of something good like that, there's no point in stopping if there's bigger work to be done. From that transporter grew machines with electric wheels up to 10 feet high. One wades out into ocean surf to straddle and pick up crippled landing craft for the Army, its submerged motors breathing through snorkels. A snow freighter on 24 giant electric wheels designed for Alaska Freight Lines Incorporated carries 150-ton loads through 10-foot drifts at temperatures 50 degrees below zero. Another uh, but we'll get to that. Now that I was thinking in terms of lumber, I saw several more machines in need of an inventor. Why leave stumps to impede the movement of logs and machines? I designed a tree saw with a blade 10 feet in diameter to cut trees flush with the ground. 
the diamond-hard teeth spinning at 170 miles per hour could cut through roots, buttresses, trunk, and dirt at the rate of one four-feet-in-diameter tree a minute, while an overhead boom directed the fall of the tree with lumberjack accuracy. The same boom could push the trees over, roots and all, if there was no objection to root holes, and the same saw, pivoted to vertical position, could cut the fallen trunks into logs. To pick up the logs, I didn't have to invent anything the elephant hadn't already invented for me. With his two tusks and trunk, he had long been used in jungle countries for picking up and carrying logs. My mechanized elephant, with two trunks instead of one, could pick up one log or a truckload. Today, on electric wheels, the log stacker can pick up a whole carload of wood in one bite. With the logging train emptied in a minimum of time, it then sorts and decks the logs according to size and kind, and in the meantime keeps the sawmill supplied with the requirements of the day. In short, it has become what one lumberman described as a one-man mill pond. Now the mill can go to where the logs are instead of being tied to where the water is. Next, I saw a need for a logging arch to do what Babe the Blue Ox did for Paul Bunyan, something big and powerful to skid the logs out of hitherto unreachable places. But why one log? Why not a whole truckload of logs? So I invented an electric logging arch to bunch up logs as much as 48 feet long, lift their front ends off the ground with cable winches and skid them out of roadless valleys or down mountainsides like you could drag a half dozen fence posts behind your car. While I was in the midst of designing machines that would prove of value to the lumbering industry, our sales department discovered we were still in the earth-moving business. We knew, of course, that during the war years, our highways, railroads, airports, docks, waterways, irrigation systems, and city water reservoirs had deteriorated sadly. But at most, we figured on a giant repair job with our war-produced machines fairly capable of taking care of it. I don't think any industry was prepared for what the repressions of five years had done to the American public. And all of those repressions suddenly were concentrated on the earth-moving business. It wasn't enough to patch the chuck holes in a highway and take up where we left off. And our commercial airports. There was no point in repairing runways built for twin-engine aircraft if they were too short for the four-engine aircraft developed during the war. The big-inch pipeline that had been the pride of the oil industry before the war was now looked upon as something on par with a garden hose. The reservoirs around big cities, once regarded as magnificent engineering achievements, were now considered to be small-town mill ponds, and city lawns could be sprinkled on alternate days or weeks or not at all. Then there were the navigable waterways, the irrigation ditches, the rural electrification systems, the docks and jetties, the open-pit mining of iron, copper, and coal. The list seemed endless, and all were in urgent need of updating. And all of these required the movement of dirt. Abruptly, we were faced not with the job of repairing the nation, but of remaking it. There was another factor that 
caught the earth-moving industry by surprise. Contractors had always been conservatives, leaning heavily on the old tried-and-true ways while dabbling cautiously with the new. But after seeing or participating in what the armed services had done in the way of moving dirt, they were ready to take off from there, their traditional ways forgotten. What was more, they had thousands of service-trained engineers, like the boy who looked over one of my new machines and said, Yeah, we had to put up with that during the war because we couldn't get anything bigger. Is that all you've got? Well, with that, I want to tell you one R.G. Letourneau went back to the drawing board and into action. My biggest scraper, from turnipole nose to tailgate, was 75 feet long by 22 feet wide and weighed 40 tons empty. With its 165-horsepower diesel motor, it could pick up 50 cubic yards of dirt, roll away with it at 15 miles per hour, and dump and spread it like a housewife spreads soft butter. I decided it would do for my medium-sized scraper and settled down to see what I could make in the way of a big one. You will recall that among the first machines I ever built was a self-propelled scraper with an electric automobile motor in each wheel. It had moved at the ponderous rate of one mile an hour. But it had moved, and I had never forgotten it. From time to time, as my electric motors increased in power while being reduced in size, I had tried fitting them into wheels, but had always been disappointed. Now, with the tremendous advances we had made in motor design during the war, I thought it was time to try again. I was deep into my plans for the electric wheel when I was brought face to face with an even more urgent problem. First, last, and always, I am a designer of machines, and details like finance, advertising, and sales, I prefer to leave in the hands of specialists in those fields. Every now and then, however, I'm reminded that I am the president of the company as well as the designer, and then I have to back off, straighten my necktie, and size up the situation. This time, the urgency was pleasant. Thanks to the thousands of men who had been trained on Letourneau equipment during the war and wanted more of the same in peace, we had to have another factory. I had a lot to consider and time to consider it in. In building a plant in Peoria, I had wanted central distribution, along with closer association with Caterpillar, whose sales offices represented me around the world. The latter motive was no longer valid. The ridiculous turnipool that Caterpillar had told me to put on ice, having proved itself during the war, was no longer ridiculous. Caterpillar was working on its own version of a two-wheeled prime mover and, under the circumstances, saw no need of using their sales offices to place my machines in competition with their own. And just to warm matters up a little, as long as I was making prime movers, Caterpillar saw no need of refraining from making a scraper that bore an uncanny resemblance to mine. I couldn't blame Caterpillar for at last seeing the light any more than I could blame my other competitors who were doing the same thing, but it did put me on a spot. Without sales representation around the country and the world, I had to start from scratch setting up my own sales and service centers. Then there was my factory in Tacoa. 
There I had learned that a big factory could carry the Word of God and testify to His power in an area hitherto neglected and not lose one ounce of efficiency. Vicksburg had proved the same thing, while at the same time providing a deep-water port. Raldemir, born of the necessities of war, was carrying both the gospel and American industrial methods to Australia in gratifying fashion. For my experience in setting up all these new factories, what did I want next? You see, there it was again. After all these years, I was still asking what I wanted next without asking the Lord what He wanted. More than anything else, I wanted my own steel mill. For one thing, I was through with castings. From now on, I wanted to forge the heavy-duty parts of my machines, replacing with forged strength the inherent brittleness of castings. Since these parts came in scores of shapes and sizes, I needed my own mill in which to prepare the billets for forging. One very good reason being that even if I could get a steel company to prepare these special billets for me at enormous cost, I didn't want to wait six weeks for a rush order to be filled. I'm one of those who, if he gets an idea for a 100-ton capacity crane hook, wants to see it lift 100 tons first thing in the morning. For another thing, my machines required all thicknesses of steel plate, from bulldozer blades to roof panels, and all kinds of alloys from the hard steel in saw teeth to the tough steel in rooter teeth. And then there were the big items, such as no one else made, like the huge elephant trunks on my log stacker, and the five feet in diameter pinion gears, and the rack gears up to 30 feet long. All told, and everything considered, I needed two or three electric arc steel furnaces where I could cook up special alloys, like a housewife cooks up a three-course dinner. And I needed a rolling mill that could turn out steel plate a foot thick or as thin as roofing. The question was where to locate. The congested steel centers were out. I needed several thousand acres just for my machines to roam around on while they proved themselves. And right at this point, the Lone Star Steel Company of Dangerfield, Texas, built during the war, was beginning to prove that some of the rusty soil of East Texas was loaded with iron if you scratched deep enough. And Texas was a state with a lot of room. I dropped some inquiries and got some replies so fast I thought they had been shot at me. Carl Estes, publisher of the Longview News and Journal, and a lifetime exponent of East Texas as one of the few places in the world fit for human habitation, was inviting my wife and me over for a personally conducted tour of inspection. If we located next door to a going steel mill, then I wouldn't have to build my own. We flew over. Immediately, Longview made a favorable impression on me because it had a good airport. Then we took off with Mr. Estes for the flight to Dangerfield. The wheels were scarcely up and we were still circling to get on course when we flew over an array of white buildings covering nearly a section of pine-studded land. Harmon Hospital, explained Carl. During the war, it held nearly 3,000 convalescent patients. Now it's closed and the government has it up for sale. Of course, it isn't anything you could use for a steel mill. 
Evelyn and I looked at each other. Those white buildings amongst the tall pine, a small lake in one corner, the large administration building. I picked up the airplane phone and instructed the pilot to circle the hospital grounds again. Then we went on to Dangerfield, finding there a steel mill ready to supply me with almost anything I could want. I'm afraid I wasn't very enthusiastic. Evelyn and I were both thinking of those white buildings in the beautiful setting. What a place for a school, said Evelyn when we were at last back in our hilltop home in Vicksburg. You're always talking about a technical institute to carry on where your shop classes leave off, don't you think? <laughs> I was thinking. Our own children, as they progressed, were going to Toccoa Falls or Wheaton College in Illinois, both of which stressed the Christian way of life along with higher learning in the humanities. But what was there for the boys who were mechanically inclined? There were several wonderful schools, including all the state universities, where a boy could get a fine technical education if he and his parents could afford it. But there were no technical schools founded on the earn-while-you-learn plan. Put all this in a good Christian environment? As Evelyn and I talked about it, the whole plan seemed prearranged. Maybe I had gone out hunting for a plant site adjacent to a steel mill, but the Lord had something else in mind. He wanted a school in which to train Christian engineers and let me build my steel mill adjacent to it. After that, things moved fast. Through the cooperation of Mr. Estes, a program was presented in Washington for converting Harmon Hospital into Letourneau Technical Institute, with specific attention being paid to veterans desiring a technical education under the GI Bill of Rights. It would be a nonprofit organization under the direction and support of the Letourneau Foundation. So enthusiastic was the approval of this program that buildings and grounds valued at some $870,000, were turned over to the foundation for the token payment of $1 down. The only provision being that in the event of need, within 10 years, the whole was to be returned to the government for its original use as a hospital. Fortunately, that need never arose. And the institute, grown to an enrollment of more than 400 students, is now fully accredited with four-year courses leading to degrees in a wide variety of technical subjects. As I've mentioned, several industries, as well as our own, cooperate in providing the students with practical experience and earning power to accompany their classroom work. Of interest here is the number of married students we have, earnest students who might otherwise have had to sacrifice their educations in order to support their families. The factory site, located on the southern edge of Longview, provided us with 12,000 acres of proving grounds, much of it heavily wooded bottomland between the factory and the Sabine River. The factory itself, because we no longer had to cope with war shortages, is so arranged that there is scarcely a foot of floor space that cannot be serviced by overhead cranes or jib cranes. Lathes, milling machines, flame cutters, and assembly departments are all so laid out that no alterations are necessary, whether scrapers, transporters, log stackers, bulldozers, jungle crushers, or even electric mules are progressing through the assembly line. 
if some special item, like a 200-ton side dump truck or a 250-ton crane boom has to be rushed through, the same machines, torches, and men just railroad it through without batting an eye. When occasionally a few machine tools do have to be moved, cranes sensitive enough to thread a needle, meaning they can raise, lower, or move tons with one thousandth of an inch accuracy, just shuffle them around as a housewife moves furniture for sweeping. The 88,000-square-foot steel mill that I still slip out to watch whenever I get the chance is just a couple of hundred yards behind the main plant. For it, I designed three electric arc furnaces, each of which can produce 25 tons of molten steel every three to four hours, depending on the kind of steel being cooked up. A special feature of their welded construction is that when a heat is ready for pouring, electric motors pick up a whole furnace raise it above a 30-ton ladle, and then tilt it forward to pour out its molten contents like pouring coffee into a cup. Then it settles back in its saddle, opens its big mouth, and an electric-powered bucket rams in the next 25-ton charge. Right beside the furnaces is a 144-inch plate mill that can take the heat-soaked ingots and roll them into a heavy slab or into steel plate 12 feet wide by 40 feet long. If some special alloy is necessary, we can pick the assorted steels out of the scrap pile in the morning, cook it up, and have it served red hot over the main factory in about the time it would take an outside supplier to inform us that we'd have to wait three weeks for the order. Through all of this, neither Evelyn nor I was neglecting our Lord's side of the business. During the winter months, where somehow she picked up the name Mom, Evelyn served as housemother for the boys at the Institute, one special problem being the young wives who thought their husbands were neglecting them when they studied to all hours of the night. During the summers, she ran Camp Bethany at Winona Lake, while in the meantime devoting full attention to our own five children. I must explain that in undertaking the establishment of the Institute, we moved from Vicksburg to Longview. There, in what had been a warehouse back by the pond, Evelyn had made a completely modern home, which she refused to let me see until the last wall was papered and the last curtain hung. There we still live, and though our grandchildren now number 17, the time hasn't been when we didn't have room for everybody. My own activities in behalf of the Lord with the release of wartime restrictions on travel has also increased. In 1947, I was able to buy through war surplus a Douglas A-26 bomber that, when converted for private use, was capable of cruising at 320 miles per hour. At the same time, I was able to secure the services of Royce Barnwell an Air Force pilot of Longview with several thousand hours of bomber time to his credit. With Barney at the controls of the twin-engined A-26, no place in the United States was more than five hours away, and Europe, Africa, and South America were just sleeper hops. On a Monday night, I could give my testimony before a Christian businessman's dinner in El Paso, scant hours from Longview, Back home by 11 p.m. after a few hours of airtime, uninterrupted by phone calls or personal visits. Wednesday night in Oklahoma City to give my testimony before a youth rally. 
Saturday in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada for a citywide revival meeting and Sunday in Calgary to speak before the congregations of three churches of three denominations. Total flying time, 10 hours or what I once spent in a day coach or in an automobile to reach one meeting. 10 hours with my own drawing table in front of me, a light over my shoulder, the stimulating purr of fine motors, a wonderful sense of floating, and no phone calls. There's nothing like it for perking up your thinking machine. I was doing the Lord's work, and He was giving me the perfect environment in which to be His businessman. I've been told that in continuing to fly on my rounds, I'm inviting the same fate that overtook my son Donald. That if God had meant man to fly, he would have given him wings like the birds. That's ridiculous. In the three million or so miles that I've flown, I've been able to carry the Lord's message to more people than I could have met in three lifetimes of land and sea travel. God didn't have to give us wings to fly. He gave us the mechanical genius to fly further and faster than any winged creature in His realm. And as a mechanic, that is good enough for me. I always say, with the conviction based on the bones I have broken in automobile crashes, that the most dangerous parts of my travel are between airport and hotel and hotel and church. The air is God's too, as well as the land and the sea, and His will will be done no matter where you are. It's a nice thing to know. You are never out of His reach.